Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon, the podcast that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is Quinn Armstrong, who directed, produced and wrote his first feature-length film, Survival Skills, starring Stacey Keach and Vanu O'Donnell. The film tells the story of Jim, perfect policeman and subject of a lost 1980s training video detailing his attempts to resolve a domestic abuse case outside of the law. We jumped into Quinn's experience working with the police as a domestic abuse volunteer that inspired him to write and direct the film, the pitfalls of 1980s nostalgia and what's it like directing Hollywood legend Stacey Keach. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Quinn. So for people who haven't seen your short film and feature work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Quinn Armstrong. Um, I am a uh, filmmaker and an actor um, uh, and I've uh, worked mainly on stage for uh, quite a few years. Uh, then I went to USC for a semester, no, three semesters and I dropped dropped out, um, and made, uh, three or four shorts there. And then my first feature survival skills. Um, and I tend to deal with, uh, um, sort of, uh, aggressive attacks on nostalgia on, on the one hand. And, um, then I draw a lot from my personal work. I worked as a, um, I worked in the domestic violence world for quite a while, both as a, as an educator, as a counselor, as a front desk person, the whole, the whole deal. Um, so you've just premiered your debut feature film, Survival Skills, at Cinequest, uh, the LA based film festival. What is the film about and why did you want to make it? Um, so Survival Skills is, uh, the story of a rookie policeman who gets involved in a domestic violence case, uh, get sort of chafes at the restrictions placed on him and tries to resolve the case outside the law, um, with disastrous consequences. Um, it is presented as, as you know, entirely as a, uh, mid eighties police training VHS. Um, so there's a narrator who comes out and says, we're going to learn all about being a cop and da, 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 da. And he creates this perfect cop named Jim who's our protagonist, who uh, gets placed in a series of increasingly difficult ethical situations uh, culminating in this domestic violence case. Um, This was a combination, I find, and I imagine a lot of writers and and creatives will uh, will agree, particularly people working in long form, uh, I find that what happens is there's all these sort of ideas. There's these cool little images and ideas floating around in your head. And occasionally two of them will collide and you'll be like, Oh, those are, those are interesting and connected. And then maybe a third one will collide. And what you, what you want or what I want is to build critical mass around an idea, um, so that you have a cohesive whole built out of these things, uh, that you wanted to, um, present for me, for survival skills, that was, um, I've always, of course, wanted to do to talk about my experience uh, working in the DV world, um, but I didn't want to do. I'm not. I don't like my mindset is not particularly well suited to sort of an earnest drama about it, um, and so I was waiting for this other thing, 
when I came across a video on YouTube, I don't even remember how I found it, um, that was called, it's called Surviving Edged Weapons. And you can look it up. It's a police training video made in 1985, I think. It is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's about like officers surviving knife attacks, but there's like weird stuff about the satanic panic and weird like Reagan era conservative tracts and, and all this stuff. Um, and I thought the I, I thought about this idea of like doing something that feels like an 80s training video that attacks the idea of what being a hero meant in the 1980s and to a certain extent means now, which for men typically means you insert yourself into situations, save the day, and you receive a, you know, movie star level attractive woman as a prize for your meddling, essentially. Um, and so I, I, that was kind of the link between the two ideas was the, the 80s training thing and the idea of what it meant to be a good cop and by extension what it means to be a good man. And then this idea of... Um, the domestic violence world, uh, which culminated in, in the concept of a, I mean, this sounds so sort of grandiose, um, but a, a tragic hero whose flaw is that he does not listen to the women in his life. Um, uh, so that's kind of the, those were the seeds and then it, you know, grew from there and there's all sorts of, um, weird things that came up. My producer, uh, Colin West was a massive influence on it and was the first person to really believe in the project. And so he deserves as much credit as I do, frankly. And this came from a short film, a nine minute short film you made of the same name with Survivor Skills starring, um, Stacey Keach. Yeah. So the, the short, the feature actually, the feature script preceded the short. Um, we, uh, we made the short in large part to get Stacy on board um, because we, and to sort of test, you know, the crew wanted to, we wanted to see how we all work together and to test out some of the VHS effects. And we learned a lot of really valuable stuff. Um, but we, we got in touch with Stacy. I sent him a letter actually um, because I mean, Stacy Keach is a, is a, is a treasure. He's an, a phenomenal actor with this, long career and you know we are these sort of usc grad kind of kind of nobodies um and we didn't have a ton of money and and all that stuff so i essentially i paid a casting director like 300 dollars to get a letter to his to stacy's manager and then to stacy um that just kind of said hey here's what we're doing here's why you specifically and only you are the right person for this um and I was expecting it to go out into the ether and then never hear back again, but he responded. Um, and, uh, he's, his manager just sent me an email that said, send it. And so I sent him the script and then he said a few hours later, he sent me an email that said, Stacy likes it. And that's the, that's all I heard from of them for like two months. And I was so terrified and weirded out by it. Was there like a particular movie that Stacy was in that really resonated with you? Well, actually, my um, uh, I've seen you know a number of Stacy's movies. Of course, the reason that I wanted him was because of a, a play that I had seen him in. Um, he did a show called uh, Other Desert Cities, 
which I think this was like maybe 2009, 2010, uh, at the Lincoln Center in New York. And he plays this character who is basically a, a Reagan type, um, a sort of former actor, one of these guys who's very like, uh, became very successful and, and, you know, very conservative and very sort of uh, uh, upright in, in a kind of Reagan way. And I, I knew I wanted someone really across the board for most of the actors in this movie. Uh, I knew I wanted someone who had theater experience um, because, first of all, that's, you know, how I communicate. That's the world I come from. So it's a little easier. But also because uh, Stacy plays the narrator. And so he is speaking directly to the camera. And it's kind of a one-man show, um, which incidentally, um, we almost didn't uh, ask Stacy at all because maybe a year before we reached out to him, he had been in a one-man show in Chicago where he had had a heart attack on stage, finished the show, and then went to the hospital and then came back and did a, re a remount of the show later. The, the dude is a tank. I think also because I think with like theater actors, there's a great level of sort of stillness within them. They're very they're very good at being almost sort of like inert in a way, and so sort of like projecting. And and talk about somebody who's got a very sort of like masculine presence. A lot of a lot of the movie is about um, different types of masculinity and what I view as a outmoded type of masculinity um, that is that has been packaged for a long time as being a good man. Um, so I, in part of my uh, work in the domestic violence space, I did a lot of education and I would go to schools and I would teach kids uh, often a gender in the media class. And one of the things I would talk about is if you look at, look at a story like um, Iron Man or any of the Marvel movies, what you have is a guy who uh, gets this power and then you have, you know, he's having fun with it. He's doing all this stuff. And then a villain comes along. And at the end of the second act, the villain defeats the hero. And the hero has, um, I, I mean, for some of you guys who have read some of those um, screenwriting manuals, I'm, I'm not a huge fan, but I'm familiar with the, with the terminology. There's the dark night of the soul um, where you, you know, you sort of, learn lessons and the B story, which is usually a, a romantic subplot comes in and, uh, uh, morally improves the hero. Like the hero, it's not just that the hero works out, gets stronger. It's the hero learns a lesson. Um, and that, that lesson is what enables him to defeat the bad guy at the end. Uh, that's troubling in a lot of ways because life doesn't work like that. We internalize these stories, men internalize these stories. And the implication of these stories is if you morally improve enough, you will defeat your enemies and you will get, you know, the girl and all this stuff. But of course, that isn't how life works. You don't always defeat your enemies. And the corollary to, you know, the Iron Man story is if you don't defeat your enemies and if you don't get the girl, it's because you're not morally good enough. Um, because you didn't, you know, <laughs> you didn't like force your, uh, opinions. You didn't force your worldview on people enough. Um, and I think that's a troubling idea, especially as the world gets bigger. 
was there like a particular moment in terms of, um, or I say experience in terms of when you were working in the domestic violence sort of like space of the sort of people that you were coming into contact with that directly folded into some of the um, characters within the story? Because it is sort of based around sort of like domestic violence incident. I just wondered if you took inspiration from that. Oh yeah, there's um, there's a couple really specific things. One of them is the so uh, the movie deals with a mother daughter pair who are fleeing a domestic violence uh, uh, case, and um, it is based on real people that I know who have seen the movie and whose names are you know far away from the movie. Um, who uh, it is a mother daughter pair who is very similar in age. Um, so in the movie, the mother and the daughter may be 10 years apart. There's stepdaughter, um, from a previous marriage. And I liked the dynamic of them being kind of in it together, feeling almost more like sisters because that had been something I had seen. Um, also the, I mean, I, so there's a program in a lot of cities in the States. I imagine, um, in the UK, there's similar programs, that's uh, called the DART, the Domestic Abuse Response Team. And what that means is that you go along with police to domestic violence cases, and your job is just to be there for the survivor. And, and you know, you're not a trained psychologist. You're not doing anything like that. You're just like, hey, do you need water? Do you need a blanket? What do you need? Do you want to talk? Like, all, all that stuff. And um, I had been in a few of those cases where the situation was complicated and I could not leave the police car. Um, the cop just said, Hey, this is, this is more complicated than we thought for, you know, legal reasons, for liability reasons, we can't have you leave the car. So I would just sit there and watch it all unfold. And there is nothing as, as frustrating, um, as seeing something, clearly unjust happening and being prevented from doing anything about it. Uh, and that's huge in the DV world. There are so many cases where both for cops and for, you know, the caseworkers and for the shelter workers where you can clearly see the guy was abusing her. You want to press charges. You want to do all this stuff. Your, your, your sense of justice is outraged. You want to help these people, but you can't because of the way the law works and that sucks but it is what it is and i have seen people ignore that and suffer for it and what i find interesting is i mean the era of black lives matter i can't breathe in trayvon martin i mean what's your perspective on the sort of like social political aspects of being a police officer in sort of say 2020 versus sort of 1980 well this is an interesting thing um i because i'm not qualified. I am, I am a white dude. I'm not qualified to, you know, say how anybody would feel on the end of, um, police injustice or police brutality. Obviously it is a massive issue in the United States and it is a deep rooted social issue, not a case of, you know, some bad guys. I think it, I, th I think I tried to limit the sort of commentary on that to the world, uh, that we were, dealing with. Uh, but it is like the idea of the, you know, the friendly neighborhood cop who does all the right things and is there to help and that sort of thing 
only really works if either there is no racism in the society, which is never going to happen, or there, there are no people of color in the community. And the, like the, the idea of Jim being this perfect cop, he can either satisfy, um, the, the sort of eighties era Reagan idea of what a cop should be, which is xenophobic and, uh, racist, or he can be out of step with his community. Um, and obviously we today are like, be out of step with your community. It's the right thing to do. But at that time, and I think for, for some modern cops in, um, uh, I mean, I hesitate to call them racist communities, but you know, in some racist communities, um, it is, you know, they may have great intentions, but they're part of a community that is, uh, that just applies slow, steady pressure. I mean, again, I am not qualified <laughs> to, to go in depth. I will say as, as regards race, um, in the movie, there is a character, uh, uh, Jenny, who is Jim's girlfriend, um, who is like him in that she's very sort of weird and created and very mannered and robotic, uh, who is, uh, played by a black actor. Uh, and we have a number of shots in which we see that character wearing white gloves, cleaning up after Jim in the background of shots, um, like making the bed and doing that stuff. And that's not accidental. Um, it is, uh, it, it is about what an ordered universe would have looked like to, uh, a, you know, small minded person from the eighties. And it's, I guess it's interesting. So when Jim gets actually attacked, there's actually a really nice moment between Jenny and Jim when he's battered and bruised and says, well, people will know. And then she goes away and then she puts like the tomato sauce in her face and say that we are the same. But it's also a sense of sort of like leveling that she's also coming down to sort of like his, coming from his sort of perspective, I guess, being that form of like caregiver, but maybe the same sort of um, care isn't given to her, should we say, throughout the, throughout the course of the story, which is interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is, this is another thing that we, we come to with our, you know, 2020, uh, ideas, but with, you know, with our 2020 ideas, we can go, Oh, she's doing like a lot of women. She is doing sort of unpaid emotional labor for him. She is, uh, doing all this stuff to make him feel better and getting nothing out of it. But at the time, you know, that is just a wife. It's, it's, there's sort of, um, uh, someone I was talking to recently w brought up, uh, Pleasantville in this context. Uh, and I think there, there is, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a little disingenuous to talk about the eighties as though they're the fifties. There is a very different thing, but, but the eighties was, it's crazy. The eighties was consumed with fifties nostalgia in the same way that right now we're consumed with eighties nostalgia. It feels like every 30 years there's this cycle um, where we get this very conservative impulse in society. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it coincides with the rise of Donald Trump and uh, reactionary politics all around the world, um, which is part of what I am trying to go after with this movie is this idea. I think nostalgia is a very dangerous thing. No, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was going to say there's just a weird sort of uh, parallel in terms of Reagan was an actor and now Trump is also, you know, an actor for all intents and sort of like purposes. Well, and I think it is about presentation of something that never really existed. I think uh, looking at something like Stranger Things, which is, you know, it's a good show and I totally get why people like it. And I'm not saying that anybody shouldn't like it, but I don't think that that kind of uncritical look at the 80s is honest because you know you look at the 80s and you think oh oh yeah Stephen King synth John Carpenter all that stuff oh times were so much simpler and they were not simpler if you were you know a gay man in San Francisco like talk about a plague you know there was there was a there was a a purposeful policy of neglect and um, I mean you can't really call it genocide but uh uh a allowing of an entire community to suffer and die. Um, and I think that, you know, when we have conversations about the 80s, if you don't allow that to be part of the discussion, if you don't talk about the ugly bits, then you end up with this like, oh, things were so much better then. And then you start thinking, oh, well, what's, what's the difference? Oh, well, things were better then because people were more traditional maybe. And then you end up with reactionary politics like we, like we were saying. I read in an interview you did with Encore back in 2015 that you're a fan of the grindcore band Pig Destroyer, and I just wondered lyrically and musically, <laughs> did they uh, influence your writing process on the uh, short and feature film version of Survival Scales? I mean, it's... <laughs> oh, Pig Destroyer. Um, Pig Destroyer is such a weird band because they're very, like... They're very heavy, doomy stuff, but you know their their lyrics are weirdly delicate in places. It's 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 an odd thing. Um, it's funny because you know when this was being written, uh, the first sort of inklings of this project uh, were around the time of um, Trayvon Martin, and uh, I have to like it. It was a very odd line to walk talking to friends and and even today talking to people about this about like you know i have friends who are firmly in the all cops are bastards camp um and i get where they're coming from i don't see that but then again i'm white you know so i can't like i can't say for sure but what i'm i'm much less interested in presenting uh you know, the terrible cop, the evil racist cop, because I've seen the evil racist cop in tons of movies and the sort of like the, the idea of the pig destroyer, like the, you know, the pig cop, uh, you know, I, I think we, those idea those portrayals are perfectly valid. And, you know, like Sam Rockwell in uh, three billboards, like, that's a, you know, that's a great example of a really fucked up cop. But I'm more interested in a cop who thinks he's doing the right thing. And I'm much, much more interested in a protagonist who the audience can get where they're coming from, even as they are doing terrible things. Um, it's, I, there's this sort of ongoing discussion I've had with a couple of the department heads and the people who have been heavily involved in this film uh, on whether Jim is a tragic hero, like a guy with a flaw that causes him to, to collapse, or a villain. Um, and I'm, 
I'm in the villain camp, but everyone else is in the tragic hero camp. Well, it's interesting because one thing that um, that sort of like struck me is in terms of like Jim going again, going against the institution basically. Like he's trying to do the right thing, is going to the women's shelter, and then due to the sort of political and like economic climate, um, it's sort of like a catch twenty two. They can only provide a certain amount of support because they're sort of like stretched. And it's just like, it sort of made me think of like, you you take someone else's burdens uh, burdens on yourself and they become your own. And there's only so much you can do within your power to help people. And then it's sort of patterns of behavior and then the system. And then he just digs this deeper and deeper hole for himself. Yet he continually, he's trying to do the right thing. But then I guess it's the, the line is between whether he's doing it for his own vanity and self-interest as him as a, as a man or it's more sort of altruistic it's like no i'm really trying to help these sort of like people and i guess that's where the maybe the line um for me anyway i would actually argue that his intention doesn't matter what matters is his self-awareness um and i'm not saying you know you're you're wrong i'm i'm just saying like what i'm uh so when we teach uh the domestic violence uh course i i worked in an organization called peace over violence in la and they, there's a specific curriculum. And one of the first things we do is we establish a definition of violence. And one of the things that we very specifically do is we say there is no intention involved. Violence is just a, uh, a force action or energy that injures, harms, or destroys. There's no sense of intention. There's no sense of if someone is trying to hurt you. Um, the definition of violence is only about what is done. And I think there's a similar thing in place here. Um, and I think, it, I'm, honestly, I think it's an interesting discussion on whether intention matters with something like this. Because for me, the, this idea of like, I'm going to do the right thing is a great impulse but because, and it's a very, it's a very American thing, I think, to be like, I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to do the right thing, and everyone's going to, you know, be so happy. And even if my intentions are great, if I don't, if I don't take into account what other people are telling me, if I don't have a more communal uh, attitude, because we all want to be like, I'm the one who saw the possibility here, and I solved the problem, and the credit is mine. Whereas Really, I think what uh, we need to do more and more these days, and I mean, this is, I think, especially true in the age of um, uh, coronavirus, is we need to act collectively. It's not about the hero anymore. It's about, it's about the group. So Jim's, Jim's flaw is not his uh, self-indulgence so much that he doesn't listen. He doesn't listen to the group. But I hope there are multiple possible interpretations, you know. Um, how much did the characters of um, the narrator and Jim change from the short to the feature? But then you mentioned that essentially it was a feature before. Um, and what was your working relationship like with sort of like Stacey and Vanya over that period of time? From the short to the feature, I think the there are a couple big uh, shifts made as far as um, uh, in the short there's a uh, there's this little shot of Jim before he's kind of created where he's sort of like unshaven and ruffled and and there's a sense that he was somebody else before all of this whereas in the feature he's literally created before our eyes on a on a screen um, uh, and I think with with Stacy I mean one of the wonderful things about Stacy 
is that the narrator could just be a narrator, but he brought so much to it in the short that we started thinking like, well, who is this guy? Where is he coming from? What is like, what is his point of view on all this? And I think what we ended up with is something that sort of hints at a larger life for the narrator, but doesn't really go fully into it. I mean, I have a, I have a binder full of like exactly where he was born, what happened to him, the whole thing, but that's, that doesn't bear on the, on the movie. That's just for me. Um, as far as the working relationship, uh, it's, I mean, it was very different. The, the two days I had working with Stacy are possibly two of the most satisfying days I've had as an artist, uh, because we were on a soundstage in LA. We had a single set. We had two cameras. Uh, we had, we just set them up to be in a wide and a close up. Uh, we did, there were a few little lighting shifts, but not much. And there was no running around securing locations. There was no craziness. We just sat like I had a little chair next to the, uh, uh, next to the cameras and we sat and we would go through bit by bit and we had a teleprompter in front of the lens. So Stacy had it right there and essentially he would just knock it out of the park on the first take. And then I would suggest, well, what if we get something a little more like this just to have a variation? And then he would knock that out of the park and we, we wrapped two, no, three hours early on both days. It was, it was just such a smooth day, uh, or both of them were, it was really remarkable. Um, with Vayu, of course, you know, Vayu is in every scene essentially. Um, and he was with us through the good and the bad and, and all that sort of thing. Um, Vayu is, uh, uh, also a theater actor, which I really appreciated. Um, we, what we did is I wanted to leave him to his own devices on a lot of stuff because he's a very competent actor and he knew what he was doing. Uh, we did auditions for this and I was sitting there with my head in my hands because person after person came in and it was just, no, no, not right, not right, not right. And then finally Vayu came in in the 11th hour. I was so happy. But our big thing was we charted, we created a chart of how robotic and how put together Jim was in each scene and then how as opposed to how unraveled and frazzled and falling apart he was and so we developed this uh this uh sort of spectrum from one to ten ten being he's absolutely falling apart he's ragged he's you know contracting his sentences he's speaking really imprecisely and one is he's extremely put together. He's very clipped and organized and robotic. And that was incredibly helpful because it gave us a shorthand to just be like, hey, in this scene, he's at like a six, uh, which created a which creates emotional continuity for him throughout the movie, which is really, really hard when you're playing such a uh, such a robot. Um, it is it, I'm, I'm really in awe of what Vayu did with this movie. I think he did a phenomenal job because he's playing a robotic character that has, that the audience has to connect with, but also has to guide us through the entire movie. Um, and just walking, that's one of the reasons I was, I'm glad he's a theater actor because he has the technique to maintain the, uh, the affect, the way he moves, the way he speaks, all that sort of thing 
while also connecting on a deeper level. In terms of his acting choices, is that something that he presented to you or is that something that you collaborated and worked with um, together with before you actually started sort of shooting? I got a really great piece of advice um, from a friend of mine at USC before we started uh, shooting this, which was essentially, you know, you can go into a movie one of two ways. You can go into a movie with the whole movie in your head and try to make that happen and try to like sort of get the DP to do what you want and get everybody to do what you want. Or you can go into a movie with a, with a core of what you want to communicate and let everyone else work around that. Um, I, I am a firm believer, um, and I've had a lot of arguments with my friends about this, in not knowing too much so that other people can do their jobs. Um, I don't want to know everything about cinematography because I would much rather go to my DP and say, hey, I want this movie or this, this scene to feel like this rather than be like, hey, let's get on a 70 millimeter lens. Let's go back here. Let's, you know, key light from over here, all that stuff. And it's the same thing with actors. Uh, we talked a lot, Bayou and I, but when the day, when we were shooting on the day, Vayu would come in with a choice and I would adjust to fit it into the movie. It's not my job to, you know, tell him what to do as an actor. It's my job to make sure what he wants to do fits in with everything else that's going on. Um, and I think that is, it's less glamorous because, you know, it's, it's less like I am the author of this movie and it's more like, I'm a manager. Um, but for me, it makes, it makes the movies better and it makes it a much more enjoyable experience. It's so much more fun to like give your collaborators a little bit of an impulse, a little bit of a sense of guidance of what you're going for and then see what they do rather than micromanaging them. And what was your most challenging day on set? Oh, boy. Um, so... We shot uh, about 15 days uh, in the spring, and then we had a break of about four months, and then we shot four more days in the fall. Uh, those included the Stacey Keach days, uh, and they also included the days with Spencer Garrett, who plays uh, the chief, the police chief. Phenomenal actor. Um, but it was... Uh, our first day back after the break, we had lost our location, which was a fairly nice soundstage that we were building a set for and all that sort of thing. Uh, just lost it. They just straight up didn't stop returning calls. Um, so we were in this tiny, unair conditioned little soundstage up in Silmar, which is a million miles away from L.A. Um, Spencer had recently had a, uh, a death in the family. And uh, that was the day that Burt Reynolds died, who Spencer was quite close to. And uh, God bless him, he, he was so professional and such, such a sport and such a great guy. Um, and, but the day was too packed. The location was not what we were looking for. And we ended up I, I, I spent the whole day feeling like I was backpedaling, you know what I mean? 
like putting out fires as opposed to being proactive, being reactive. Um, and it was an interesting lesson in listening to your actors. Um, because, uh, I had this idea of how I wanted the, it's exactly what we were just talking about. I had this idea of what I wanted the scene to be. And Spencer kept saying like, no, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm going too big or I'm, you know, I feel like I'm not, this doesn't feel honest. And I was like, no, 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 it's good. It's good. This is, we want it this big. We want the sort of thing. And then I got into editing and I was sitting there with my editor and be like, God damn it. He was totally right. He was completely and unequivocally right. Uh, and I found that actors are sometimes wrong when they tell you what they want to do, but they are almost never wrong when they tell you what they don't want to do. When they say this feels too big, this doesn't feel right. That I've never had an actor be wrong, even bad actors. I've never had an actor be wrong. I've had actors be wrong when they're like, Hey, I would love to do this scene. Like, parachuting in from, you know, the sky or whatever that, you know, <laughs> that's, they're not always right about the parachuting, but when they say this, this doesn't feel right, it's coming from their gut, not from their head. And also was it Colin West, um, who I interviewed, I should give him a shout out, I interviewed him and the sort of uh, Greg Lucy, both wonderful people, um, wonderful filmmakers. Um, so was uh, Colin on set with you as well during sort of like filming? Every day. Um, Colin, so Colin and I met at USC. He stayed and finished the program. I did not. Um, but we sort of connected while we were there. I sent him this script. I had no impulse to like do it. And then he came to me and was like, I read it. I think it's great. Let's do it. I was like, oh, oh, okay. I guess this is happening. Um, and that is honestly the best, the best uh, weapon that I ever had in this is having someone I respect who believed in it because then when, cause you know, we all have doubts and we all feel like, Oh, this is garbage. Oh, I'm terrible. Blah, blah, blah. If you have someone who you believe telling you it, that it's good, then you can sort of be like, but Colin likes it, but Colin likes it. And Colin's a smart guy. Um, he, uh, and also a, you know, a phenomenal filmmaker in his own right. A, a Great producer. I uh, so it was him and uh, Mike Downing, who was also a USC guy, were our on the ground production team. They were sort of functioning as line producers and DPs and everything. I gave them a folding table and a printer, and they improvised a world class production office where we shot in fourteen locations in two cities with about twenty union actors for a budget of $120,000, which is insane. I've never even heard of that happening before. Um, but they, they did it and they were, they were like locking locations the day before we were supposed to shoot there and like all sorts of, all sorts of crazy gorilla stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, Colin is, um, I can't say enough good things about him. And he would always, he will, he would sort of be like, Oh, shucks, you know, stop it, stop it. But he is really, uh, as much the, <laughs> as much a major creative force behind this as I am. And he also worked as a second unit director. And I was just sort of curious in terms of what he was sort of like shooting 
in terms of the second unit sort of stuff and that how that sort of like worked um, in regards to the film? Yeah, so we um, that that that's a kind of we use the term second unit director as a kind of catch all for a few things that he was doing. Um, one of which was uh, we had a couple B roll days um, in LA and in Seattle, where we all uh, we sent out essentially two units to get B roll, um, and one of them was uh, me and uh, our DP Ali Schultz. And one of them was Colin and our um, uh, first AC, uh, Eric uh, Ugland. Um, and so Colin went out with a sort of specific mandate of like, these are the sorts of things we need. These are the, you know, this is where they fit in in, in these shots and got those specific things. And Ali and I went out and got more sort of uh, mood-based things. And what I was sort of interested, actually, um, in terms of the presentation of this film, because often with uh, when you're working in this sort of like um, budget range, and this is something I've noticed sort of interviewing and watching other sort of like independent sort of like filmmakers, that um, some of them will set up with a super ambitious uh, idea in terms of like this would play well as a sort of a romantic comedy if like Tom Hanks and um, Meg Brown were in it. When they present something like that, you can clearly see the sort of the amount of industry and people it requires to make something like that feel like a whole and unified world, just in terms of, sort of background extras like cars and just making it seem like a living, breathing entity. And I guess because we're used to seeing um, film at a very, very high level, it just it sort of apes reality in a way, sort of fake reality. It seems real and lived in. And what I noticed about this with the idea of the VHS um so the aesthetic, even though you had like extras, I mean, the church scene sort of like comes to mind as well, that being sort of um, full, is that it kind of a way, um, it sort of like blurred those sort of like edges in a way that it, um, that it sort of obscured but made the film in some ways bigger and, and realer, even though it, in essentially the, the VHS sort of effect you've got is essentially sort of kind of obscuring um, reality in a way. And I just wondered in terms of, of that, was that a particular, I mean, how much sort of VHS sort of effect did you think was right for the project? Um, I think there's a couple, <laughs> there's a couple things. The VHS stuff covers a multitude of sins. Um, in that, like we have, there are a few scenes with extras and stuff like that, but there are no extras in the police precinct. Um, there are no, like there's a lot of scenes that would feel hollow, um, were it not for the VHS and the conceit of the eighties training video, because it's supposed to be low budget. Um, I think one of the things, one of the reasons we chose to do this project was because of that, because we could, we didn't have to dress our sets as thoroughly because again, it's a VHS thing. And the other thing was we have a narrator. So, uh, which is an incredibly useful device if it's justified because, you know, you have two scenes and the transition isn't working well, just throw the narrator in, um, uh, which, you know, obviously it's not ideal. The VHS stuff, uh, one of the things we learned on the short is that a filter, uh, a like VHS filter on, you know, Adobe Premiere or Avid or whatever is not going to cut it. Um, and I've become so attuned to this. I can see it all the time now when people are doing VHS effects and they use filters. Um, the, what we did for the feature is we actually put the the tape, uh, we put it on tape, we put it, the whole movie, we cut it, and then we put it on VHS tape. 
And I knew we wanted these patterns of distortion and these places where the tape degraded in quality. But every time we tried to use digital effects, it just felt fakey and, and didn't feel organic. So what, what I did is uh, I bought every VCR from every Goodwill in the greater Los Angeles area. I had about 40 in my apartment at one point. And what I did is we put the... We put the movie on VHS tapes. I took those VHS tapes, put them in the VCR, popped the top off of the VCR, and then I used uh, <laughs> magnets, knives, and fire to create uh, particular kind. Like the magnets create static. You move the magnet closer, and it creates little lines of static. You can, uh, depending on where the magnet is, you can create static in different parts of the frame. Um, the knives create tape wrinkles, you know, those little wrinkles that sort of run down, but aren't staticky. Um, the fire we didn't use as much because I set like three VCRs on fire. Um, that was tough, but it, there are some nice distortions, but the nice thing is it is not, uh, predictable. You know, I can sort of say, this is roughly where I want something to happen, but I'm not controlling exactly how the frame is splitting exactly how the static is coming off, all that sort of thing. There's a level of organic uh, interference from it. Um, and that was really important to us, even more than having the VHS for, uh, in order to cover up some of our budget limitations or in order to fit into the time period. The main thing that we wanted is this sense that the medium is interacting with the story. Uh, there is the tape degrades when Jim's, when Jim is stressed, when Jim, when, you know, we have these, uh, montage, these sort of experimental montages throughout it, it is all for a reason. Um, and not just like, Oh, cool. Look, we're doing a, Hey, you remember VHSs, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a particular scene though, sort of, uh, when Jim pulls over the uh, motorcycle ride and he's walking up to him and then you just see like the flashing lights and the police car and it whips round over the trees and they seem to just sort of disappear and then come back in. And that was a really sort of like, beautiful shot. And I just wondered, was that uh, you and your sort of uh, cinematographer, is that something that you'd sort of like talked about before and sort of like planned in terms of sort of like lighting? <laughs> if you could see the storyboards that I drew, you would understand how little I gave uh, Ali, our DP, to work with. Um, I have, when I, when I do storyboards, I tend to do angles, just like just angles, just a few stick figures, because all I'm thinking about is storytelling and clarity. I'm not thinking about beauty. I'm not thinking about the image. For me, that's all. First of all, we avoided beauty for a lot of this movie on purpose. Like there were, I mean, poor Ali, who is a tremendously talented DP, kept being like, oh, we could do like this cool lighting thing. We could do all this stuff. And I was like, nope, we're going to light it flat. We are going to have the two characters sit down and talk because that's the VHS thing. A couple scenes where she really got to, like the motorcycle scene where she really got to sort of let it, let it fly. That's all her. Um, I would, she would set up, uh, she and the gaffer would talk, set up how they wanted it to go down. Like I would tell them the angle I wanted, then they would set things up. Then I would go and tweak. Um, and generally speaking, I'm, I'm primarily sort of like a verbal textual person. 
I have visual ideas and that sort of thing, and I, I get that it's a visual medium, but that's not my first impulse. So I try to work more as an adjuster um, than anything else. But I mean, they like we wanted a little more light on Jim in that scene, and they rigged a incredibly powerful light in the back of the motorcycle through some dark magic that they use. I mean, they were sneaking lights in all over the place doing all this stuff and and um it's to claim any credit for those images would be insulting to them because they did 90 percent of the work and then i would come in and be like oh what if we do this and do this and do this and do 10 percent extra and then people come up to me and are like oh that image was so beautiful and i'm like i know i'm a genius um <laughs> but it's all her just one of the sort of things I wanted to ask about, um, I guess it's sort of a narrative and sort of like visual thing. And again, like not wanting to get too much sort of like spoilers, but in terms of the VHS conceit or concept kind of like melts away at the sort of end. And I just wondered what was your sort of particular sort of thinking and intention behind sort of like stripping away that sort of artifice and then just sort of, I guess, like letting the reality of the situation sort of breathe in that way? Well, there's a couple, a couple things. Um, a couple of reasons for that. One of which is a very sort of instinctual thing where um, anytime I see a really good horror movie, there's that, there's that lovely thing of stepping out into the real world and everything is sharp and everything is different and three-dimensional, but you can still feel the movie around you. Um, and I wanted that moment uh, where things clarify a little bit to feel like, you've just left a theater and now you're in the real world. Um, as far as the more text-based uh, uh, explanations, it is, I think, significant that we see uh, the kind of, the story of Jim the hero fall away completely. Everything that happens in those final moments is the result of his anger and vengeance. It's not him trying to do the right thing anymore. He's not even pretending. Um, and I think that's important. And I think it's important that it happened in the real world because these are, this is a thing that really happens. There are cops who have gone through this exact thing and they're not, you know, robot cops like Jim, but this is, this is real. Um, and I'm, Never, I'm never going to be satisfied with just a joke. I'm never going to be satisfied with just like, hey, remember like crazy VHS police training videos? Whoa. Um, I actually think parody is like a good parody is the hardest genre of film to pull off because so many parodies are just like, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Um and the good ones, like the, the sort of old Mel Brooks, like Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, that sort of thing, are much more critical and focused. Um, Survival Skills is not a parody. I, it's, it's not as focused on comedy as, you know, Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles. But I've always admired that thing where it's like, we're not just making jokes here. We are we are talking about something that's really important to say, because I'm not going to waste, you know, an hour and a half of y'all's life just to make some jokes. Not that, you know, that's a sin or anything. There are people who are very good at that, but I'm not funny enough to get away with that. 
and we find ourselves in a strange moment in time with the COVID-19 uh, at the moment. And I just wondered, sort of like personally, professionally, how you're going to measure the success of um, survival skills looking forward. I mean, I don't know if you've applied to more uh, festivals or anything like that. I mean, I guess we're all kind of like in limbo at the moment. Yeah, the festival season has shut down. We have we have something like 20 applications out and it's just shut down. Um, I am not holding out a ton of hope for the festival season this year. Um, I'm very glad that we got, uh, the Cinequest, uh, premiere. We got, we got a, our premiere, we got one more screening and then they canceled the rest of the festival. Um, so we just barely got in under the wire there. Uh, and we've received a couple distribution offers. Um, and we're talking to a couple other people. Honestly, I'm stunned that, First of all, I'm stunned that it got made. Um, and then I'm stunned that we've gotten distribution offers. So at this point, I my goal is to get money for the next one. Um, survival skills, I'm proud of it. We did what we wanted to do. I got to do the one for me. And now I want to do something that maintains that integrity, but is a little has a little more commercial potential. Um, and that's, that's kind of the measure of success is if, if people will watch survival skills and be like, Hey, I want to see what you'll do next. And in terms of sort of distributors, who's sort of like reached out and sort of, uh, approached you at the moment? Is that something you're allowed to sort of talk about? I, I can't get too much into specifics. Um, what I can tell you, uh, you know, that might be of interest is so, we there are a few distributors that are like clearinghouse distributors that that put out you know two three hundred movies a year, um, massive things, and they're not necessarily bad because uh, you usually get really good profit shares out of those out of those places. Um, but you know you have to do a lot of the marketing yourself and 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 all that sort of thing to make it a success. And then there are like the boutique distributors like Oscilloscope or, I mean, you know, A24, which is way above our pay grade, but that sort of thing. And the, the way through all of this is through relationships. Um, granted, a lot of people just aren't buying right now. Um, it's, you know, everybody's sort of freaked out. Nobody knows what's going on. So there's, there's quite a few uh, distributors, particularly those sort of smaller boutique ones that are just not making purchases at the moment, unless it's like, you know, <clears throat> like a horror movie with a, an established star or something like that, a slam dunk kind of thing. Um, but, uh, there are opportunities. And for me, something that both Colin and I have talked about this a lot, we would much rather take a, you know, somewhat smaller deal and get things done and move on um, I think there's, there's an unfortunate thing happening in the indie world in the last 10 years where everybody wants to be, you know, Damien Chazelle or Ari Aster or, you know, everybody wants to be this person who makes their first movie, premieres at Sundance, wins the award, and then you're a smash hit and off you go. And those are the only people that we have time for. And that's really unfortunate. Because I think some of the greatest film artists are uh, – their first movies are – I mean, check out some of Bergman's first movies or uh, Fassbinder's first movies. They are not great. Uh, and I think there's 
I have some friends who I think are wonderful artists who have gotten really discouraged because their first thing wasn't the big smash that sold for a million dollars and that sort of thing. And I think uh, I'm, I'm not interested in uh, holding on. I'm not interested in waiting for that. And I think the same is true for people who are even just thinking of making their first movie. I have friends who are waiting for like the $5 million deal. Like, you may get it, and I hope you do, but you may not. And I would much rather make, you know, we were, we were at um, Fantasia last year, and there are movies, there are feature films that were made, clearly made for like $10,000 there that were really good, that were all concept. They were all just good writing, good acting, and concept. Um, so we're not, you know... A good deal for us is the deal that allows us to keep swimming. I think it's not a case of like perfect time. I think it's like it's the experience. It's going through the battles and the wars of just producing, getting stuff out there that's going to make you a better artist than having all the resources. I mean, I think uh, it's a bit sort of tangential, but I guess one of the worst things is that you finally get all the resources and, and, and the attention, but you haven't had the experience in order to be able to sort of, you know, do something with that. Yeah, and there's tons of examples of that. I mean, there are tons of people who came out of the gate were supposed to be the biggest thing in the world and then, you know, fell out like you got the, um, what was the guy's name? Josh Trank, the guy who did uh, Chronicle. And then they put him in charge of a big, big budget thing. And, and you know, for whatever reason, I don't know the story behind it, didn't work out. Um, and he is, he may be coming back at some point who knows? But that is a big, like, that is a really tough pill to swallow. Well, it's also like, what kind of movies do you want to make? If you want to, if, if genuinely your only interest is making big, big budget sci-fi movies, if that is the only thing you can ever see yourself doing, then yeah, go intern at Disney and work your way up and do the thing. But for most of us, it's not just about being the biggest, most successful person in the world. It's about following that little thread that you have, you know, that little unique thread inside of you that you can just very carefully, you know, sort of inch by inch follow and try to stay honest um, and, and let everybody else worry about like, what kind of artist am I? What, what is my thing? What do I, you know, all that stuff. Who cares? Just make stuff. Um, and on that note, what's your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? <laughs> um, oh, boy. I mean, I like, well, there's sort of two versions of that. I'm not terribly um, big budget minded. Like most of the things that I want to do are little horror movies that are like kind of conceptual and, and all that sort of thing that we will do anyway. The next project, one you know, by, by hook or by crook, the next project is uh, called Dead Teenagers. And it is uh, – it has a lot of the same ideas in it and sort of takes off spiritually from survival skills but is a much darker and much more horror-based thing. Um, you know, like – Money budget isn't an issue. I would love to take a crack at the um, what uh, I think Warner Brothers just tried to do with the um, Universal Monsters, the Mummy, Dracula, Frank. I would love to 
get a fresh slate to to tackle those to set it you know set them in the like 1880s have them be violent have them be actual horror movies keep the budgets low all that sort of thing but i have a feeling that that will not be the next offer coming my way maybe someday well i hope so um i'd look forward to seeing you direct to one of those properties um and then my final question for you um what film do you remember most fondly from your childhood ooh that is that is tough i i don't know what movie i remember most fondly uh, but I have a very specific um, memory of uh, well of, of two things. One, a really formative thing for me was Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, which I I still to this day I watch it and I don't understand how it works and why it works. I think like I watch it and I'm like this should be so annoying. This should be so like twee and and over the top and all that sort of thing, and I shouldn't like. But I every time I get sucked into it. Um, I, I watched the other one is I watched Haksan, which is a movie from the twenties about witchcraft. Uh, that is, it's a documentary. Purportedly, it's a documentary. It's a very you know, it's about the history of witchcraft through the ages. I have yet to see any more horrifying imagery in any movie than in that movie. I, I, I watch it all the time. It is, and it really fucked me up when I was a kid. It really did some damage. Um, and it explains a lot of why I am the way I am now. But, uh, which is, you know, which just goes to show just because a movie is old doesn't mean it's innocent or without harm. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Quinn and you can find out more about survival skills at www.survivalskillsmovie.com. Just hit the link in the description box below. And don't forget to check out more great content on aruba.com from film reviews, video game hot takes and top 10 videos. Why not sign up and become a member and share your passion for all things entertainment on aruba.com today. And you can like and subscribe to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube, and maybe leave a comment or review if you like. And you can support the podcast on Subscribestar at www.subscribestar.com forward slash I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon right now. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom, and I'll catch up with you next episode.